Tim Learning Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Alicia Waite. Hi, my name is Alicia Waite. I'm an intensive care trainee and a clinical research fellow. My roles are split 50-50. I'm also co-chair of the TRIC network, the Trainee Research and Intensive Care Network, and a member of the UK Critical Care Research Group Oversight Committee, and more recently a trainee representative in the UK Remap Cap Trial Group. You also won an award for research as well, didn't you? (laughs) The Early Career Clinician Award, which was related to research done during COVID. I think the the first the first place to to start is obviously being an academic um, trainee and being on that pathway. I think there's not a lot of understanding as to what what that pathway actually looks like. Would you be able to talk us through what what an academic training pathway um, sort of looks like as a as a general overview? So academic training can have many different appearances, and there's formal and non formal pathways but the traditional pathway is to do an academic clinical fellowship or an ACF then a PhD and then an academic clinical lectureship so an ACF is usually for three years 75% of that's clinical 25 is research so within that three-year period you've got nine months to do research and that can be negotiated with your uh, supervisors how you're going to split that up over the three-year period The point of the ACF is to develop research skills and probably do some groundwork for a PhD if that's something that you're interested in progressing into. The PhD is going to be three years full time typically, but you can do it part time. You could do an MD, which is going to be two years in length. Um, And it's up to you whether you can you want to do it purely in ICM, something clinical, if you want to do something in basic science, basically the, the options are endless of what you can do your PhD research in. An ACL, the Academic Clinical Lectureship, that is typically for four years or until you CCT, and that's 50-50. So again, how you structure that, whether that's a couple of days a week or alternate weeks, it's negotiable. So you don't have to do an ACF to get a PhD but you do have to have a PhD to get an ACL post. Um, The ACL and ACF posts are NIHR funded. PhD funding can come from many, many different places, but there are alternatives to this as well. So instead of doing an ACF, you might do a clinical fellow job, or you might do the groundwork for a PhD during your SSY in research. There's so many variations of what you can do. There's alternatives to um, doing academic training that allow you to do research without taking time out of training. So there's the Associate PI scheme, the Associate Principal Investigator scheme, which allows you to lead in a supervised way in a research study at your local site. Then after that, you could do NIHR clinical research training and then become a clinical researcher. So your role as a clinical clinician researcher would be to be a PI or be a co-investigator or collaborator at your local site and run studies that are multi-center. If you don't want to do any of that, there's also the option for you to just be involved in research studies at your site. So you can get on the delegation log. That delegation log is essentially a, a, a list of people involved in a study at your site who have had training to participate in that study and your role can be recruiting patients or um, maybe delivering drugs if it's an interventional study 
you're part of a team that are delivering the study at that site. So there's lots of options for getting involved in research and you can get involved in academia at any point really. Um, and there's lots of support for you, even if it's not necessarily that well known about. Um, and the useful guides I think are the NIHR Integrated Academic Training Guide, the IAT guide. And there's also a document from FICM called the Academic Training in ICM. It's come out this year and that gives a really good overview about the different ways you can get involved in academic training. So my simple maths said that if you start from an ACF post, that's 10 years so to com from the beginning of that to completing the, the clinical lectureship. That's quite a long time um, to be sort of going, going through that, that process, isn't it? So the ACF is meant to be an in-programme okay. fellowship, so it shouldn't be extending your CCT time, although we did have a, a listening event hosted by the TRIC network and um, with some representatives of the academic reps from Thickham who joined. And there were a couple of people who said that their training had been extended, so it doesn't always work out, but the ACF shouldn't be extending your training. PhD will obviously extend your training. And the ACL, it may extend it. And I think it so far from all of the people doing ACLs that I've spoken to, it does extend their training, but it shouldn't be extending it by double. Yeah, because I think from, from my perspective, the the view of academic training is is that it's longer than the nor the normal training, even if the intention is for it not to extend training. Obviously, a PhD you can't avoid that extending extending time and training. But all of the other all of the other posts, it it has always felt like it's it's a longer route of of getting through of getting through training, um, which I can imagine even the perception alone is enough to put some people who may be interested off doing doing it as a as a path absolutely i think that's one of the biggest off-putting factors to be honest is the lengthening of training um you're you're completely right the phd we go into that expecting it to lengthen things mm. but it's it is frustrating and that was definitely mentioned at the listening event yeah, the, the difficulties trying to negotiate not lengthening training and these are all really motivated people who are doing academia um, and accepting it's going to lengthen things to some degree so to then work really hard to get competencies but then be told that it doesn't matter and you're still going to have to do a time-based period in training is, is frustrating I think there was an actual phrase used at the at the trick the listening event which was that doing academia is associated with multiple punishments, um, <laughs> which I think sums it up quite, quite well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> there were lots of conversations about battles being fought to even get time out to do the research uh, for the PhD or um, negotiating ACFs, being told that you weren't allowed to do an ACF along with dual training. So there are a lot of issues there. Mm. And yeah, timing is a, is a big one. I think in terms of taking time out of training, there is good understanding about the need for that with PhD. So I'm not sure that's necessarily the trickiest part. Mm, okay. um, but, but yeah, there, there are certainly challenges. I think another thing that's um, 
useful to think about if you are considering doing your PhD is how you're going to maintain your clinical skills during that three years or if you're not going to how you're going to reskill when you're coming back into training so there's certainly one of our colleagues who is doing um, his research part-time in order to avoid that issue of de-skilling um, and also because of the funding funding side of things as well um, so that's another hurdle mm. in in the process of all of the negotiations is where your funding is going to come from. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you don't have to say I'm doing my PhD. This is going to be a three year slog of getting, of getting it done. So is, is your, is your colleague doing it um, part-time alongside training as a, as an alternative way then? Yeah. So I think the research lends itself to, being done part-time I think if you're doing basic science as uh, a basic science PhD it probably isn't suitable to be doing that part-time if you've got cells to grow you need to pay attention to those and um, taking a couple of days off won't be will be disruptive to your research whereas if you're doing a more clinical PhD then it might be better suited to to yeah. being part-time um, but also when you're doing academic work there's probably going to be a drop to your salary so to be able to pay your mortgage, potentially, you might need to do locum shifts or part-time research is another option, potentially. Yeah, I suppose that, that's another barrier to entry, isn't it? If you're, if you're used to the, the salary enhancements that come from doing the, the on-calls and the out-of-hours and the, and the nights to, to moving into, into research, it, you know, it's easy to forget. It's a, it's a big portion of, of, a, of a salary that you... That in many ways we often can't can't live without. Yeah. There's there's a number of factors that if people are actually doing a PhD, there's there's been consideration of all of these things. Um, so if they're then facing challenges with their TPD um, or it, within their region, it's particularly frustrating because they've already got that drive, they've already overcome those hurdles. To then feel like they're being punished further is um, disheartening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this has all been talking through what what the next what the next point was was which was talking about sort of the challenges that you face as a as sort of as a as an academic trainee and um, in particular, um, do you find that uh, that people you work alongside, both trainees and consultant level, do you think do you think they understand the the academic pathway? No, is the short answer. <laughs> um, I think it's it's seen as this kind of mystical thing, academic draining, and there isn't good understanding about it. I think lots of people have heard about an ACF, people know what a PhD is, um, but if you're doing a non-traditional pathway, that's really vague and people don't really know what that is. And I think actually from a um, TPD perspective as well, it's a lot less clear because there isn't as, as clear guidance with the NIHR posts. It's, it's very straightforward how you're meant to be treated. But that, again, like we said before, doesn't always happen um, in, in the way that it's intended to. Um, but the work that's involved with research, and that's clearly going to depend on what type of research you're doing, um, is not really understood. The fact that if you're having to commute an hour and a half to a hospital site, that that is going to have an impact on the research that you're doing. That's not understood either. Um, the fact that it's it's very different to doing 
work for that we all had to do for our training our clinical training um, and the fact that research is so pervasive mm. throughout all of your life if you let it be um, yeah all of these things I think there's there could be more understanding of um, yeah. and it would benefit people who are doing academia if particularly TPDs either understood the system a little bit better or had a person that they could go to who understood it well um, for advice about how to negotiate training pathways the length of training etc yeah yeah um so what you said about commuting of an hour and a half so obviously if you're if, you, if you're doing research alongside training the two aren't going to be married up are they you're not going to be doing research at the site where you're potentially going to be um placed which i guess is another challenge because you would never be able to say um my research is here therefore i always have to be be here because it impacts on your training if you're only ever at, at, at one site because it limits your limits your experiences but then it I suppose from a, at a tpd level they, they want to make sure that everybody gets the same you know the same exposure to to to, to different things so i can imagine that that must make things very difficult as well if you're potentially split across two three different places just as part of a, a normal working pattern for you I think a degree of separation is good. So mm. I think having a clinical day and just doing clinical stuff on your clinical day is a positive thing and it's healthy mm. um, so that you're not neglecting your clinical training. Mm. Um, but for, I can speak personally that I've been helping run a multi-center study as part of the um, uh, the first national project that the TRIP network have been doing. doing um, that involved replying to lots of emails in my own time and even on clinical shifts because there were um, urgent answers that needed to be provided um, and my the amount of energy I had after doing three hours of commuting in a day was minimal <laughs> to, to be able to then concentrate on um, answering those urgent queries whereas if I had to do half an hour's commute then I'd have a lot more energy to not only do reading up of things that I'd seen clinically but also managing the study that was tripping on in the background yeah. again it's going to depend on what type of research you're doing but um, there is guidance actually from Fickham that in an ideal world you're going to be located near to this the place that you're doing research but practically speaking that's also a challenge for TPDs to try and manage it be fair to other trainees who are not doing research yeah suppose it's where even so it's even for us in in the Mersey region which is a geographically condensed region compared to other other regions if you're still experiencing an hour and a half commute even within what is a smaller um region I can imagine on a on a national level it, it's even harder if you're with especially some of the more geographically spread out um areas that it must make it an even bigger challenge finding that time to be able to to manage the workload um of of what you've got to of what you've got to do for either for either aspects of the sort of your of your life i suppose i think some people would say that actually doing full-time research solves this issue so yeah. um and i've certainly given advice that i shouldn't be doing the 50 50 split that i am doing um because it makes it more challenging but I think the, the project that I'm running, it just wouldn't have been able to happen if I was only doing chunks of research. Yeah. So 
and um, yeah do people do people do pathways where they might do alternate so rather than doing a, a three-year chunk of research where they might do a year of research and then go back to do clinical for a bit and then go back to do research is that ever an option in terms of a phd i don't think that is an option and i would advise against that actually yeah. i think um it's it takes a bit of warming up uh when you so for example i do a week of a week of research a week of clinical work mm -hmm. and it's not easy just to switch back uh, instantly um i think there is a little bit of a warming up period to get back into the swing mm -hmm. um and there is i think you just lose momentum if you took a year out yeah it isn't even feasible i think with certain phds you just need that continuous time and that having that time concentrated on this one thing that you're looking at is is really valuable and feels like a luxury as well i think um yeah i think it doing doing part-time research that works um because you have that continuity but stopping and starting is has its problems i think associated with it okay and and doing it as that 50 50 split when you're trying to talk to say rotor coordinators um about it how easy is it to sort of to negotiate the the, the time that you that you need within within especially regarding sort of an on-call pattern it's been surprisingly easy i think because it's very straightforward a week on a week off um that's very easy for them to apply although if i'm doing nights at the end of that clinical week then you know that's a few days which are affected into my research week um but one of my colleagues is doing two days of research a week and Monday and Tuesday are there on non-clinical days. And that's also straightforward. So there's the rotor coordinators tend to not have a problem. If you're, as long as you let them know what your pattern is, then they can work around that quite easily. Yeah. I wonder if the, the more widespread access to less than full-time training is potentially helped from that. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think less than full-time training has made it a lot easier um, to not have pushback for saying what your days are, that you're available to work clinically. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Do you think the availability of less than full-time has potentially made it easier for people to access research in, in training? That's a good question. <laughs> um, uh, when... I don't know the answer, but I can comment on my experience when I start when I got my ICM number, I wanted to go less than full time in order to do research. And the answer was no. And it was only when I offered to give up my training number, then that no became a maybe and then eventually a yes. So I think there, there is still pushback. There is still um, those battles that need to be fought, unfortunately, in order to to um, get time to do research, if, if it's a non-traditional route that you're taking, a non-formal route, um, that may change. And I think with the new guidance from, from Fickham and uh, the gold guide guidance about it being fine to take time out for research, hopefully as people become more aware of that, it will be less of an issue. If we want a well-rounded ICM workforce then research is incredibly important within within that and it should be facilitated in a way that that works for the the trainee not necessarily with a focus on working from a training perspective if that makes sense 
yeah that does yeah I think I think there's a gradual well I don't know I think I'm quite biased but I think <laughs> I think I'm surrounded by people who recognize the value of research so I'm finding it easier as I progress um but cert I certainly think that when you're in an ITU placement rather than being in medicine um, it's easier to accommodate research as there's greater awareness around uh, research training maybe it will be easier if people listening won't won't know this but you come from a core anesthetics background into intensive care so as part of our intensive care training we have to have had a year within or a 12 month full-time equivalent period within within medicine how did you find continuing your research commitment while having to do that medicine component so you were essentially outside of intensive care for that for that time so it was a challenge in one sense but um so the, my medicine year was split between two different sites I did acute medicine and emergency medicine in the first hospital and the second hospital. The first hospital was the same location as where I did my research. So actually that was really straightforward to continue my research and uh, wasn't an issue at all. The second hospital, it was a huge issue because it was a, an hour and a half commute. That's the place I was referring to. Um, so I was exhausted. Plus there were some ethos related challenges at that site, um, which were an additional emotional drain really um, so it was really difficult to to maintain the research and it just couldn't be done really and um, so I had a backlog of work um, to catch up on whenever I came to my research weeks as well as needing to regain the energy to actually do do the research so it that was a really tough year in terms of managing uh, to maintain the research at the standard that I wanted to whilst uh, continuing with the medicine training. But I think that, that's very interesting. So when, when I asked you about how well do you think people understand, so I think there's the there's the centres where there's a lot of research that, that goes on and, and those centres would probably be more au fait with the idea of somebody doing research as part of their, of their job. Um, but I think there's also the centres where, which can be both big and small, where research just doesn't factor into their their daily their daily lives. So, do you think that the difficulty in understanding is is that as a particular as a trainee, it's it's seen as that distraction. It's an added extra rather than potentially the the core of what of what you see your career um, as be as being. I think it really depends on the institution you're working in and the team that you're working with and what their views are. So I've, where I did my core anesthetics, it was a small, well, it's not a small, it's a DGH, <laughs> decent sized DGH. And they didn't have a research department with research group within intensive care, um, but they were actually really pro doing research. And if you were gonna take some time away from your clinical day to go around and do some data collection, they were fully on board with that, very supportive and very keen to support um, trainees applying for studies to happen at that site too. So a hugely positive mindset towards research there, despite the lack of resource in terms of research nurses and um, that sort of funding. The department where I do uh, 
the, the majority of my research right now. Again, very pro-research. Um, and I think it's it's been a really positive experience in that hospital, in that intensive care in particular, because especially during COVID actually being so visible on a daily basis, recruiting patients, other people who have a vague interest in research, including the research nurses, would come and speak to me about projects that they were going to do as part of their um, studies. Um, and we developed this really great relationship um, for people just interested in research coming and talking to myself and other members of the research team about their ideas, uh, brainstorming. It was it's such a great environment to be in. And the consultants, again, are very supportive and they can see the amount of work I'm doing for research. Um, so I, I felt that there it's been really easy um, to to do research. And if I do need to take a little bit of time away from a clinical shift to send an email or have a meeting, they're actually on board with that if, if time allows. Um, uh, other places, there isn't an understanding, but if there's a positive mindset, I think that helps and they're, they're willing to kind of listen to what it is that you're doing and, and hear about it that way and kind of learn through your experience about um, what the process is. But if there isn't that appreciation to uh, well, one speak to you, about what you're doing and be interested then then I think that's where the disconnect happens. A lot of what we've talked about so far about the sort of the, the challenges in in it but it's where what you've alluded to there I think is the the, the positive aspect of, of being a particularly being a trainee that's involved in research in that as a trainee you're going to go to multiple different departments um, and it's the and I suspect that do you find that when people realize that you are heavily involved in in, re in research and that you know it is forming part of your of your career so far and, and in the future do you find that you get a lot more conversations from people about I have this idea I have that idea how do I be involved and it almost it enables a department to have a greater interest in research I definitely think so I've had conversations with consultants who have research ideas um, and speaking to them about those ideas is really fun for me. <laughs> um, I definitely enjoy that. And in terms of other doctors as well, so whether that's more junior doctors or people at my state of training um, who maybe have thought about doing a bit of research, I think once they know that I that's a passion of mine, they'll tell me about research they've already done, talk to me about ideas, ask for hints about maybe who to speak to or things that they might be able to do. Yeah, it's a great opener. Um, I do think just to give some caveats for those who maybe aren't engaging in those conversations, I think the reason for them not engaging in those conversations is because they're so busy dealing with other things in their department that it, it isn't a focus to have that level of communication about actually what your research involves and the amount of work that goes into it and um, why it's interesting why you're so passionate about it and um, so I can understand why those conversations don't happen but where they do it's a hugely positive thing and I think can be a driver for uh for momentum mm. yeah because I think the the traditional model within units isn't it is to have maybe one or two consultants where research forms a part of their plan it might just be being the local PI for a for a study and may not be doing so initiating um, 
original research but and I think that's where then perhaps not as good as just highlighting how important that is just by just by of itself because if you're enabling research to happen well that's that's enough it doesn't have research within intensive care it doesn't have to be designing a, a multi-center randomized control controlled trial of a, of a really important thing actually just having research happening is at least to me I think I think is it I think is enough if that's if that's what you're able to do then that's what you're able to do and and that should be encouraged definitely there's um, a position statement that the GMC put out quite recently uh, about normalizing research for doctors and that talks about how research should be a part of part of normal life and mm. <laughs> normal clinical work um, and the NIHR and the Royal College of Physicians have put out a similar statement I think it's titled making research everybody's business mm. um, and there's this the terms research active and research aware so maybe your role in research is not in fact to be a PI but if you're aware of the studies then you can let patients know about them or let family members know about them and therefore you're you're increasing accessibility to those studies um, for patients. So at least giving them the opportunity or highlighting patients who may be suitable to people who are interested in being active in research. So um, I, through the PIM COVID study, which is the, the study we've been running in the TRIC network, what we seem to find is that trainees who were given a little bit of time by their supervisors or by the consultant in charge that day to do some research or contribute to the study, um, they seem to be a lot more active and uh, up to date with the study versus those who were trying to fit it in in their own time. So time, I think, for doing research is, is important. And so if the, if the consultant body is appreciative obviously there's, there's got to be time for it in the clinical day if you're really busy then it will be really annoying having someone taking time out to do some data collection but where time where there is time um if you're given that um proactive you're given that time proactively then it it i think embeds the importance of research within your within your team and i think those consultants who are pis for studies if Maybe, I don't know how much talking there is about that, but there's lots of trainees who come to the TRIP network asking for advice about who to contact to get involved in research at that site. And there is research already going on in the unit that they're on, but they just aren't aware of who to go to and speak to about it. So there's, again, a communication issue there for uh, informing trainees about opportunities to be able to participate in research, it seems. I'm going to skip ahead for a few for a few questions because you, you've talked about how passionate you are about about research but I thought I'd just ask you why why do you see research as being so 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 vi so vital to I suppose inten intensive care and I guess medicine as a whole so there's evidence that being a patient in a hospital where which is research active improves your outcomes Obviously, research has been done to get that data, so that's important. Um, and we've seen how research can transform patient care. I remember in my first IT job, which was a, a local appointment of service, so a standalone ICU placement, 
the urethane trial came, results came out. And that was a trauma center and we were calling patients who had traumatic brain injuries. And when that result came out, the consultant was really excited about this result and changed his practice on that day. So it really can change the way that we treat people. Um, and we saw that during COVID very clearly. I think from my completely biased perspective, it's really obvious that it's important and vital. Um, yeah, you should come speak to me so I can understand your perspective and change your mind. <laughs> so I, um, I, interview, I interviewed um, Andrew Davis from, um, from Australia some time ago. And he, so he said, as part of that interview, that as an intensive care doctor, he can help one person at a time. But if he's involved in research, then actually he has the opportunity to help hundreds, thousands, potentially every intensive care patient just by being involved and by and by organizing um, research, which I thought was quite a powerful, quite a powerful quote when it comes to when it comes to thinking about the impact that research has. You know, the the consultant you worked with, Eurotherm study came out and changed his practice on on day one, but how many people did did that and have done so based upon the results of of trials as you say in covid there was so much shift in the way of in the way of treatment based on what was an ever-changing land, landscape and there, there is no doubt the impact that that research had um there will have say will have saved countless numbers of of lives that i don't think we would ever be able to actually appreciate the impact that that that, um, that that actually that actually had. I think certainly when I was work, working, that was actually a way into research for a lot of trainees and juniors as well, because there was so much going on and happening so quickly that you needed almost an army of recruiters in the junior doctors to be able to to match it and and um, and and keep up with it. And I think that did that did change things and get get more juniors interested in research perhaps earlier than they perhaps wouldn't have been and show it is accessible to them um even if it's just recruiting people to to studies i think there's also a benefit of tr trainee networks or just mm. network research generally so even if you're doing an audit if you're doing an audit at a, a local site then there's going to be a limited impact of that but if you're doing the same audit on a mm. national scale there is potential for there to be benefit. So like, yeah, I completely agree that um, the impact to make a difference to many people is, that's a great quote um, and a great summarization of why why research is so important. Yeah, yeah, I wish you could claim it as my own. Um, <laughs> also, if you do, if you only look at the practice of your site or your own practice, then you might think actually there's great benefit in your hands, but, testing something on this larger scale may show actually that's not really the case. And um, that's really important as well. I do think there is a value of single centre studies, but the impact of multi-centre work is, is definitely important too. You mentioned network network research, and obviously you've, you've mentioned the trick network a couple of times. Um, what is it? So <laughs> the TRIC network, it stands for Trainee Research and Intensive Care. It's a UK-wide group of ICM-interested trainees um, who aim to facilitate audit, QI and research. It's not just for trainees, it's also for other members of the MDT who want to get involved. Um, we've, 
I think I've mentioned also the PIM COVID study, that's been our first study. So actually, when we, when the pandemic hit, we actually were in the middle of trying to set up a, an audit, a national audit, and that just got parked because of uh, all the work going on, um, looking after patients. So then we decided to look at the psychological impact on COVID patients who've been in ITU across the UK and developed this research study. Um, there was three of trainees who developed it. We got some advice from psychologists and um, the ICU steps research manager as well, who gave us really valuable input um, and discussed this, the study with patients. Um, so from, from the idea of just doing an, a national audit, we ended up doing a multi-center study, uh, which was research that involved a lot of trainees who were doing research for the first time, which was really good. Um, and we have had 52 sites involved and over 1600 patients recruited. And we're just in the middle now of trying to analyze the data and, and write it up. Um, and I haven't had any experience of running a study prior to that. So I think this network is a fantastic opportunity for people to get involved in research for the first time, get involved in audit. And uh, at the ICS this summer, we've, we're gonna be having a competition. We've already shortlisted four projects for the next national project. Uh, and we're really keen for people to keep submitting their ideas and use this as an opportunity to get engaged in, in a national network level of audit. If you just want to tick a box, that's totally fine. Uh, get involved if you're actually interested in research but haven't really done it before it's a fantastic first opportunity to to test out what research is like or if you're really passionate about research and you have an idea that you think should be run on a national scale then this is a really good place to to do that and to do it with some support from uh, those of us who are current trainees who have been running the BIM COVID study and also there are lots of consultants who are very supportive who are keen to support that type of research as well. How can people get involved with the TRIC network? So we have a website, the TRIC net, network.co.uk, so T-R-I-C network.co.uk. There's a mailing list that you can join on there and we send around information about studies that are keen to have trainees involved in and we're collaborating with other trainee networks as well on a couple of studies. Um, so that's a great way of finding out the latest information that we have. We're also on Twitter. If you search for Trick Network, you can find us there too. What do you think the, sort of the I suppose, the, mo the most interesting or exciting aspect of research in intensive care, whether that's now or, or in the future? There are so many things that are exciting. I don't think I could narrow it down to one. Um, I think that the development of artificial intelligence is really exciting within multiple aspects of healthcare. Precision medicine is so interesting, um, identifying subphenotypes of diseases, adaptive platform trials, the collaborative approach to research that we're having. So we're having many more members of the MDT and being involved in research and also trying to improve the diversity of patients who are involved in the um, public 
uh, patient and public involvement in the development of research ideas. I think that's a conscious effort that's being made that's really interesting too. Um, the development of registries. Uh, there's the idea of bringing academia or not academia, research into daily clinical work and making that normal. I think I'm really excited about it as well. So there's so many things that I think are very positive about the future of research in intensive care. Um, Alicia, thank you very much for, for giving me your time and, and talking to me. Getting involved in research is really easy. If you speak to people at your hospital, within the UK intensive care research community at large, they're all so enthusiastic and keen to support you and give you advice and guidance on what the next steps can be. Conferences are a great opportunity. Twitter is great. Um, if you get in contact with the TRIP network, we can also give you guidance on who to speak to or who might be a good person to get further advice from. Research is long. <laughs> great. Thank you very much, Alicia, for giving me your, giving me your time to, to talk about this. So right.